All right, we're live. Um, thank you for joining us, Brian. Uh, this is the CFO Leader Podcast. Um, and I, I guess the the idea behind the CFO Leader Podcast for our first time listeners here is we want to provide tactical information for finance leaders that can help them address topics that they are addressing in their day-to-day lives. So um, today's topic is SaaS product pricing, and we got Brian Lanier. Hey, Brian, how are you? I'm great, Anthony. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Looking forward to it. Great, great. Uh, Brian is currently CFO at PDQ.com. Tell us, Brian, what does PDQ do and what, what's uh, what's their story? So PDQ.com is a great company. It, uh, to me, it was one of the best-kept secrets here in Salt Lake City. The best way to describe what they do is picture you've got a company. You've got 200 computers out there, everyone running around with a laptop. And Adobe comes up with an update. And now the poor guy in IT or sysadmin has got to go around and update 200 laptops, try to keep them up to date for every mm. every time you have some sort of a software update that comes out. Well, our software allows you to click a button. It scans all the, all the machines on the network. It inventories what's on there, what needs to be updated. And then you click another button to deploy the update. And then like that, five minutes later, sysadmin's job is done. He can do bigger and better things than chasing down 200 people for an Adobe update. So it's good. That's, I could definitely see how that would be an issue and solve a really, really big pain point. So that's Great fantastic. Fun. Love the culture. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a cool thing to be a part of. Great. So uh, before we dive into SaaS product pricing, let's just talk a little bit. Obviously, you've been with PDQ for about six months. So this is, you know, you just started, been there for a little bit, got your, your feet wet. But I'm curious, you know, in your first, you know, 60 days as a new head of finance, just for people listening in, um, you know, I mean, first of all, what, what is the role of the CFO to you, I guess? Yeah, good question. So the role of a CFO, the way I view it is think of it as a trusted partner. You've got to be lockstep with the CEO in a lot of different ways. You're trying to be as involved strategically as you can with a lot of different areas of the business um, to be an assistance in, instead of a roadblock. So you're, you've got a lot of different hats, especially depending on the size of the business, uh, the stage. I, I usually get involved in kind of the growth stage life cycle of a company. And so a lot of times you're going to wear the hats of trying to introduce controls for the first time. Sometimes you're going to be introducing discipline for the first time to the company, <laughs> right? Uh, the first time you're going to ever have a budget introduced to a company, a lot of things like that. So there's just by the nature of what you're going to do, there's a lot of, um, call it something that could be viewed as a roadblock, if not done correctly. So you want to balance that, not just being viewed as the business prevention department. You want to also make sure that you're strategically involved and also helping people introduce the discipline of thinking through decisions and making the right price points and making the right, uh, understanding your capacity and really figuring out how to, what the levers in the business are to really take your business to the next level. So great. it's kind of all encompassing. It's a pretty busy role, but it's uh, something I enjoy. Yeah, yeah. I, I have this this dynamic at the current company I'm with, Red List, right now. I always joke that, uh, you know, the president of the company, he's like, you know, Captain Kirk in Star Trek, and I'm like Spock. And so I, he's always, you know, the guy that's just running off and charging into things. And I'm the one that's just in the background, like, logic dictates, Captain, that, <laughs> you know, I'm the downer kind of just talking about this. And he's like, all right, you're right, you're right, this. And then, but he, he's got that, you know, a fantastic entrepreneurial mind. And I, I like that dynamic because we balance each other. Right. And so I'm by nature, you know, I think for me, I'm, I'm more, a lot more conservative. I look at things. Um, I, I tend to be a, a cup way half empty. <laughs> I always assume the worst. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that, that, that's great. I, I agree that, that that partnership is, is, is totally critical. Um, talk to me, you know, what are your first initiatives like day one? What's, what's top of mind? What's top priorities for you when you start? Yeah, that's actually, I think it's super important. I've, I've got what I, I guess I would consider a flexible playbook when I enter a new business for the first time. The very first thing I like to do is just listen and learn. Honestly, it's, you don't know where to start unless you figure out the things that are already working well, and then the things that need to be fixed. 
So you don't want to start fixing either things that are not a priority or things that are already working well. So there's a lot of learning that's going on, understanding the business, the product, the processes in place, the team you have in place. There's a lot of just listening and learning, frankly, to, to begin. And, and I take a lot of notes and I get lots of lists going of <laughs> observations, nothing else other than just really learning the business. Right. Once I get to the point where I feel like I actually know enough to do something, then I usually it's just a matter of prioritization because you'll never enter a business and not have a list that's too long to attack. So it becomes a matter of what's most critical. And so it doesn't go really from the order of the highest priority or the biggest levers of the business. Sometimes it goes with what's the most urgent. And so usually I start with cash. I hone in on cash pretty fast. Yeah. Right. Okay. So you could have some great ideas of how to improve net income and you could have a really profitable business in two years, but that doesn't matter if you run out of cash in six months. I agree. So once so, I make sure that cash is solid and you've got a good place to the, call it a good, solid foundation of a, a business that's not going anywhere, then I start going into longer term strategies, mm -hmm. right? And try to prioritize in terms of critical needs. And then, then you're going to transition more into the strategic long-term levers. And so what I like to do actually from a more tactical perspective is once I get to that point where I've modeled the cash, I understand the cash flow and all that, and then I'll get into just modeling the business. So that your overall forecast model. Mm -hmm. And when I like to do that, it's a great way to learn the business. So what I do is I'll sit down with all the different divisional owners, I'll download the last year of everything we paid a vendor and our customer records for last year. And I'll try to put that into a very tactical, applicable model of understanding, okay, here's, here are all the vendors that we pay. And then I'll go sit with everybody and say, what are we paying this for? What does this do? And then what are the drivers? Is this going to increase every time we hire an employee? Is this something that we're going to pay more posting costs every time mm -hmm. we get a new customer? Right. And so then you get a solid understanding of what's a fixed cost, what's a variable cost. And what's something they've been paying for three years, they forgot that vendor existed, mm -hmm. right? So great way to really kind of get deep and understand the core of the business pretty fast by just building out that model. And then I'll go through the, the org chart. I'll sit and I'll talk to you and get to know all the different managers of each department. Walk me through your team. What does everybody do? And then you start to understand some of your capacity and your scalability of your teams. So every time we hire another we bring on board another thousand customers, we're going to need another customer support rep. Start to understand those levers. And you can then lay that out in an Excel spreadsheet. I like to get my... I like to start out in Excel before anything else because it's mm -hmm. the most flexible way to really just get in the details and play with it. Yep. And it usually takes me a solid few weeks. And then when I've got, when I'm done, I've got a pretty good foundation for a forecast model where I can just lay out all the different inputs of the vendors, the customers, the employees, mm -hmm. and how that really works. And then you start to, at the end of that exercise, understand what are some of the levers you want to start poking at and where, where you can start drilling. Okay. Well, let's talk a little bit just real quick about cash real quick. So you said you build a model. What uh, explain to me like the the basics of this model is it like a 13 week you know cash is it monthly uh, how often do you update it what what's talk, talk to me about how you you're monitoring the cash yeah so depends on the business again so i've i've actually worked in businesses where you get them so cash solid that i rarely watch it i just update it every quarter i just keep an eye on it but mm. i've also started with businesses where i realized that they do have about a six month runway and then they're going to be filing <laughs> bankruptcy right yep yeah and so <laughs> In those cases, I'll actually update it every week. And so mm -hmm. when I do that, I'll, I'll take a look at all the different, uh, all the different vendors and the, the different payment patterns. Some are monthly and it's pretty straight line and it's pretty easy, but then you'll have other ones. For example, Salesforce will have an annual $100,000 payment, mm -hmm. right? So you'll want to get out the, the timing of the payments and I'll try to get all the, the payment schedules and then any other call it annual or quarterly bonuses. So you try to figure out the lumpiness and the timing. Right. Otherwise, sometimes you'll have a nice steady, oh, I'll give an example, you have a nice steady cash flow, but if you don't consider lumpiness, you can get surprised. Right. And then after that, I'll lay out the revenue side as well. And it depends if you've got a nice recurring monthly model for your revenue, then it's pretty straightforward and it's pretty level. But 
I also worked for a company one time that had a few customers at high ticket values. Mm -hmm. So it was a solid ARR business, but it had a lot of extreme lumpiness where as I was laying out the cash this year and I was forecasting it, I was actually watching next September knowing that's my local. Oh. So I would actually watch things far in advance, understanding that the cash was extremely lumpy on the receivable side. Yep. And depending on a huge event we held every September, that coincided with when we were just at the lowest collections point as well. So everything we were managing is watching that low point, knowing as soon as we got on the other side, cash jumped again and we were good for another six months. Right. So I think depends it's on the lumpiness or the smoothness. Right. I, I think it's it's kind of universal that all CFOs hate surprises, good surprises or bad surprises. They just universally don't like it. <laughs> they don't want to be surprised in any way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that's great. No, no. That, and I totally agree. You know, it, it really depends on it, you know, whether they're cash flow positive or really cash flow negative or this or that, but uh, that, that, that's good to know on that. Um, let's dive into um, your SaaS product, uh, our main discussion point right now. Um, and I'm going to kind of set the, the, set the, 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 the idea here of what we're trying to get at. So let, let's suppose that you are in an executive meeting and you know, CEO walks in and says, guys, we got to launch a new product, or maybe it's the, the CPO or whoever. Um, and they're talking about it. And then the product of the topic of pricing comes up and CEO looks at you and just is like, Brian, I'm gonna need your help on this. We got to figure out how to price this appropriately. We can't, uh, you know, we, we got to win in the market. We don't want to go too low, go too high. You know, uh, what do we do? And so that's the question. And how do you approach that? And what's your thought process and framework? Perfect. Yeah. First off, I'm I'm excited and I'm very happy the CEO looked at me to begin with because a lot of times I'm actually inserting <laughs> myself in that conversation, <laughs> or you find out about it after the fact and you then you have to insert yourself. So the fact that I'm already involved is a win to start off with. Right? Good. Okay. Great. Good. So so I always want to make sure I'm involved in pricing discussions. Um, as okay. far as who actually owns it, it depends on the stage of the company and depends on the talent you have on your team. Mm -hmm. But I would usually point to a product marketing type role. Usually if you've got a product marketing person in your organization, they're the ones that are going to take the lead on the pricing. Mm -hmm. Even in such cases, I like to be involved to make sure that I can kind of make sure they're on the right track and everything's considered and, and that they don't uh, go too far off in any, any one direction. But in cases when there's not a product marketing person, which is depending on the size of the business and a lot of businesses I've been in is usually the case. A lot of times I'll actually take the lead on it. And so the first thing I'll do is I'll start gathering the, the team together that I need for inputs. So I usually always get sales and marketing involved because they've got more of a finger on the pulse of the competition and the market and the price rates that are out there. And you don't want to do this in the vacuum. You want a lot of different inputs. So I always get sales and marketing involved, but I don't push it too much on them either because a lot of times I think that uh, you'll get a salesperson involved and, and there's a certain amount of intimidation for high price points, or you want to make sure there's everything's considered strategically, how you want to be positioned and thought of by your customers. And sometimes if that price point comes up too high, your sales team will just, it's hard to overcome that mental hurdle of how am I going to sell at that price point? So okay. I want them involved, but not necessarily running the process if right. they're going to be the ones responsible for selling it. Um, and then I'll also get other people involved like uh, products because products and development, so they're going to be the ones that understand what it's going to take to build it and what it really means as far as the mechanics behind what you're producing to sell. And those are going to be some important inputs as well. So anyone else within the organization, you know, that's going to have some valuable insight and process, I kind of get the team together and start talking it out. And then the framework I usually follow is, is 
I'll, I'll kind of lay it down in a couple steps. So the first step, uh, the first rule that I always follow when I start to establish pricing is just keep it simple, right? I, it drives me nuts when I try to, as an example, I don't know if I want to call out specifically a big organization and the software world that starts with an M okay. runs Microsoft. Yeah. But if you, you have to have a PhD in Microsoft to know what you're going to end up paying sometimes. And you don't, uh -huh. you want to avoid that. You want to just make it simple. When you, you want your, your sales to actually be boosted by your pri pricing scheme rather than it be an impediment. So if you line, do it right and keep it simple and there's alignment between your value prop and the customer, and if, if everything is aligned, then actually your price can be a strategic advantage to even help boost sales, right? right? So you want to keep that, keep it simple and keep that alignment there. The second piece is going to be your, what I like to say, it's a credible no-brainer. That's what I've, that kind of coined the phrase, it's a credible no-brainer. So one of the first steps you need to do for pricing is you need to try to understand what it is, what's your value prop. We'll go into this in a second. I want to, there's a lot more details to understand with your value prop. Mm -hmm. But whatever it is your customer views as your value prop, whatever you're selling is, this is the value you get from our product. You want to have a certain amount of return on investment for your customer. Mm -hmm. And I usually try to aim anywhere between four and five to 10 on from the low to the high range on the return on investment for your customer. And the reason why is because if it's a, you know, call it 1.5 to one return, you're going to go show up the sales pitch and try to say, hey, for every dollar you pay me, you're going to pocket a dollar and 50 cents. And they're going to look at you and say, that sounds neat, but that's not worth my time. You just want it to be a no-brainer that they'd be dumb not to do business with. Mm -hmm. So if I were to tell you for every dollar you pay me, I'm going to put $4 in your pocket, you'd be dumb not to do business. You'd be jumping all over that. Mm -hmm. But then if I told you, but for every dollar you give me, I'll give you a million dollars. I've just lost credibility. Either I don't know what I'm talking about or I'm trying to pull a scam. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So you want to keep that right range if it's the right value. So you'd be dumb not to do business, but it's still credible. So that's mm -hmm. the credible no-brainer. And so those are two main facets. Everything's kind of based off of whenever I do my pricing. And then you're going to have the other, everything else, what I'll call a double check, the reasonableness test between if you're landing in the right spot or not. And that's going to be stuff like your internal metrics. You might do all this math and find out this is the right price point, but then you're going to find out. But if we sell it at that price point, we're going to be losing 10% every time we do a deal. So it's not feasible. You, you want to have the right price point where you're going to have the gross margin, where it's a profitable business and, and it all makes sense in the lines internally as well. Yep. Right? So that's your first checkpoint. Your second checkpoint is going to be your market fit, your competitive landscape. So you might find out that you've got this great price point. It's a credible no-brainer. Sounds great. But then you look at your competitive landscape and you'd be 2x the next most expensive competitor. And so you're just kind of priced out of the market. So you're going to want to keep a close pulse on what your competitors are charging, how they're charging things. And then um, this last thing I'd say is just feasibility. So as you're pricing everything out, sometimes you want to watch scope creep like with everything else. And it might get a little out of control where you're selling a product now that's no one wants to be in a situation where you're selling some vaporware that you can't deliver on so that right. everything you're doing is going to actually make sense and you can deliver on everything that you want to sell at that price point. Mm -hmm. So, so okay. So framework that I like so to follow. No, that, that's great. And there's there's a lot to digest there. So for, first of all, um, it, it seemed like a critical point is just understanding and believing in the value that your product is delivering, right? I, yeah. I noticed that you started with that as opposed to, oh, I need to understand what the cost of my product is, right? You started on the other flip side, which I, I totally agree with. Um, so like you said, like if you can save a customer, you know, you give them a dollar or they give you a dollar and you're giving them four back in savings, then that can give you an anchor point for kind of determining, well, it's worth it to pay me X amount or this amount because you're saving X amount, right? And so you're probably working, I'm assuming that translates into working into uh, case studies or examples or trying to really dive into some kind of 
sales marketing collateral where you could put it even in like a proposal to say, hey, you know, if you implement our our tool, these are the actual cost savings that you can get a net, you know, ROI over the year of X amount. Is that kind of what you're that translates into is a tangible product? Yeah, exactly. So there's there's a lot to unpack here too. So there are certain different layers of of the value prop as well. So I'll say the first thing you're suited for keeping it simple again is you want to make sure that it's a value prop that's as much as possible is universally understood and accepted. Mm-hmm. The last thing you want to do is show up for uh, a sales pitch and you're saying, we're going to give you $4 for every dollar you pay us. And then they're going to look at you and question and say, oh, but that's not really value you provide. Or is that really value? And, and you don't want to get an argument if is that value or not. Or, sure. Well, how are you calculating that? And then you're arguing about math instead <laughs> of selling the service. Right. Right. Yep. And so sometimes the hardest thing to do in this step is to actually find some solid relevant data. Mm-hmm. And so, but, and that's why you also, sometimes you can even start with the salespeople and, and they just kind of have a gut feel if they're in tune with the market enough and it kind of, they can tell you where to start. Mm-hmm. Um, so you kind of start with them, but if you can, as much as you can actually quantify it and put some numbers behind it, the better you are. And then there's a certain tier of, of value that's called more impressive than other types of value. So if you can do something that promises uh, revenue growth, mm-hmm. then that's kind of the, that's kind of the higher standard. That's great. So I've had one company where we were able to do some math and we did some data mining. We found that all of our customers, after they signed up with us, they were able to increase their volume by 10% in the first year just by doing business with us. And so then we're able to put some ratios together and see where they started. They're able to get a predictable amount of growth. And then that was a value prop that we could then base our pricing off of. And as they see value, the revenue growth, and it's it's not what I call soft math, but it's hard math. It's easy to support and it's easy to believe and no one's going to say no to revenue growth. Right. How does how does this exercise change if you have a product that is new? Let's say you're launching a brand new product, no competitors. So you don't have a market price point versus maybe a highly competitive market where you have a lot of competitors, you know, you're, you're going to be going, you know, you're going to be going up different people. There's already established prices. How does that, your thought process and and decisions change with that, those two scenarios? So that's actually a really good question too. And that's, again, the the hardest part sometimes is finding the data and the newer you Mm -hmm. are, the less data you have, the harder it is to nail down. So sometimes you're going to have to make what uh, I work with someone called these heroic assumptions. Mm Mm-hmm. Sometimes you're gonna have to make assumptions, and that's why these double checks come in handy too. So it's a little further down the process. But if you if you've got a plot of where your competitors are priced, if you understand your competitive advantage and where you fit in your value prop, and if you understand in relation to them where you stand, you, you can start with a pretty good idea of where you should land. Mm-hmm. Whereas instead of the normal process, that'd be kind of your double check and your reasonableness if you're in the right landing right. You can kind of use that to start if you reverse the process as well. Mm-hmm. So make sure all the internal metrics align, make sure you feel like you're in about the right spot with your competitors. But then the important thing is you've got an overlying strategy. So back to keep it simple and your alignment. It's not just an alignment with your customer's value and your pricing, but it's an internal alignment of your strategy and your pricing as well. So your strategy should align with your customer's value. And so you should have an idea, even if it's new and you're still testing it out, of what type of value you're going to be promising your customers. Because your collateral is going to be based off of that. Your product roadmap is going to be based off of enhancing that value. And so whatever your, your thesis is of what you're going to be adding to your customers, you should have, even if it's not proven out yet, some sort of starting point that you're going to be trying to align. And then you can tweak it if you find out that you're either understated your value or if you need to adjust, but you can call it flip the process, benchmark where your customers are, figure out where you should be landing. And then you can kind of troubleshoot from there and back out, back into it until you get have some more valuable data. Okay. So let, let's say you're in this meeting, you got your CTO or you may be like a product marketer, you got people at the table and your you know product marketer is in love with the product, thinks it's the best thing ever. And they think it should be, you know, I don't know, $50 a user. And you, you know, you obviously aren't as deep in the product as they are, but you're probably looking at maybe some third-party sources. You're looking at competitors and you're thinking, eh, 
I don't know. I, I'm thinking that this is really a, I don't want $25 per user type product, right? Given the market and just looking at competitors and whatnot, how are you resolving those differences in opinion on pricing and kind of coming to a consensus? So depending on the stage of the company and how many customers you have and your availability to go gather data, right? So let's say you already have a good customer base and yeah. it also depends is it a brand new product or are you launch, launching the business or is it a secondary product you're going to try to add to your existing customer base? Mm-hmm. So if you have some customers, you can, you can pull and say, Hey, look, what about this? Maybe like a bit of a thought group and say, would you be willing to pay 15 for this? You can do some quick polls. You can gauge interest. You can do some market research on that. If that's avenue is not available to you, then will you, I guess the worst case scenario, you should be able to do some win loss analysis and learn as quickly as possible. If you landed the wrong price point. Mm-hmm. What about the like structures of, you know, free trials and then conversions and this and that, is that part of the discussion that you're involved in when you're discussing that and, uh, and how, and how does that come into play in terms of determining what you do and, and this and that? Is that more you or driven by someone else? Yeah, absolutely. So that's, I'd say that is going to be, so it's not as simple as just, hey, here's your price point, right? There's going right. to be some variation to that. You're going to have different questions like, well, what's our go-to-market strategy? Is it going to mm-hmm. be you know, freemium with an upsell? Is it going to be free trial? Is it going to be based off of demos? So some of that is going to input as well. Then you're going to have other questions such as um, what's our discounting? methodology right what right. are we going to do about bundling additional products mm-hmm. so there's going to be an overall more overarching strategy that's going to tie into this so for each one of your products you're going to have a price point and strategy and right. again back to the alignment comment you're going to want to make sure that aligns with everything else and so a lot of time depending on what your strategy is if it's a land and expand let's get one flagship product in there and then get excuse me get more share of wallets mm-hmm through more products and um, depending what your strategy is, that's going to change. Or if it is just that we've got one big product, you want to do all cart and add to it or just launch big with this, your competitive advantage is you have this bundle no one else can match. Um, so your strategy is going to dictate your approach. Got it. Okay. No, that makes total sense. So l- let's say you, you're, you know, you have a strategy or whatever, or that's kind of well-defined. And let's say that your CEO has asked you to like, uh, as a deliverable to kind of model something out. He's a numbers guy. He wants to see, he wants something he can play with, with different, you know, inputs and outputs. What would be kind of the structure uh, at a high level of a pricing model that you would maybe think of to put together for, to address that? Okay, so good question. I think the there are two different levels I view a model for this. So the first model is the pricing itself, right? Supporting mm-hmm. the rationale and the reason for that pricing. And the second one's going to be on the impact on the business as you start to sell, right? So but let's take that first model first. So the first model is, is trying to understand, is this the right price point? Mm-hmm. You're going to do a few things, right? All these inputs I talked about are going to be built in there. You're going to want to understand the break even for your customer. As an example, are they going to, whatever their investment is, are they going to recoup it in the first quarter or in year two? So what's the break even for your customer? All these different inputs we talked about and probably without going and also the value prop. I like to document the value prop in there. Is it revenue like we talked about or is it something else like now they have, it helps them be compliant or it helps them with cost savings. Mm-hmm. So you kind of document everything we talked about in this little model where you can kind of support everything. So that's, that's the first model. And just talking about that, what that sounds like to me is kind of like, sort of like a pricing tool. Like I, it's something I would give to like a sales rep, like if they're in the demo and says, all right, you know, Hey, Mr. Customer, Mr. And Mrs. Customer, um, you know, how many, you know, people do you have? Well, if you include, if you use our software, uh, your average payroll cost for these people is X, you know, you may be able to eliminate X amount of positions or whatever, which will result in X amount of savings. You're, prov- you're basically building a tool that can take inputs, which will then push out 
you know, hey, well, you've saved X amount. It's pushing out an ROI and a, and a cost savings. Is that kind of what it is? So yeah, yes, it's a little more than that, but so that can be a derivative from this. So once you build this model, this model, this model also have a little bit extra in it as well. So this will be, uh, for example, how much is it going to, this can be, think of it as your build or invest or not decision, right? Mm -hmm. So you also are going to have, okay, it's going to take two years to build this. And so what's going to be the cost? And then you put in some assumptions of, we'd have to cross sell 50% of our customer base in order to break even on that investment. So you're gonna, and so it's a little bit of an iterative, uh, kind of like a circular reference. If you change your price points, you know, depending on the penetration of your customer base or what you think you're gonna sell and your TAM, kind of all that analysis built into one. And then you can, once you pick that price point and what you think that's gonna result as far as your break even on the investment, kind of got all that built then yes then you can take that and then you can build your sales collateral out of it and uh, like got a it roi tool so but that's kind of the foundation that's more of determining what your price is aligning with what the value prop you're going to sell is making sure you all believe that and then are we going to invest in this or not so it's also that additional will it give us a return on the the cost to build this tool or this product do you incorporate features into this model? Like maybe you're considering like, you know, what's the MVP of this product or is it worth it to hold off to incorporate some additional features, which maybe let's say cost an extra two or three months and maybe one additional hire to make sure it's ready in the time that the engineers say that's needed. Is that kind of in this model as well to kind of consider uh, cost and, you know, to get, get the product uh, shipped out the door? Actually, that's a great consideration. Most people kind of lean towards the MVP, quick, get it out the door and prove mm -hmm. out the theory first, right? Um, that's just kind of the way everyone defaults these days. But this, you can also use this, this first model I'm describing now as kind of like your scenario evaluation. You can say, you can kind of model both scenarios mm -hmm. and see if it makes sense either way or see what produces the, the best return or the fastest return. So you can, right. you can use this to stress test your assumptions mm -hmm. under different scenarios. Okay, I got it. So it's great. So you could sit down with your executive team and say, all right, guys, if we, we launch, let's say this, this, this product, if it takes, you know, we, we're assuming it takes a, a year and a half, but let's assume in the model and you, you flip something on it that it takes us two years. So you got an extra six month of burn from your engineering team. Um, let's assume that instead of a price point of $50 per user, we only really are able to get 40. And then you're basically to push out, you can play with those assumptions and then be able to see, you know, given these assumptions, it's going to take us, you know, I don't know, three years for us to break even. And, you know, then profitability of X and X that that's kind of what you're trying to create and be able to play with those assumptions. Is that, that correct? Exactly. Yep. Got it. Okay. That makes sense. So that's, that's your first model. You've had your discussion. You kind of played around and proven that uh, you got the green light uh, for the investment, given some certain parameters, you're comfortable with the risk and the um, feel confident that, you know, you can hit the, the assumptions in your base model. So talk about the second model that you built after that. The second model is just kind of taking that first, the information from that first model, not plugging it into you're operating your forecast model. So mm -hmm. at the very beginning I talked about, I kind of get my hands dirty and understand the business and I kind of build out the levers. Yep. And at that point now I start to integrate that into the, that model as, as the assumptions of, okay, now we're going to hopefully finish building it by this date. And I build a little cushion to make sure that we're not being overly <laughs> aggressive. Right. Yep. Yep. I'm not going to, what some people might call sandbagging a little bit, but I just want to make sure we're not going to have any misses or be planning on something that might not materialize that'll adversely impact some other aspect of the business. Right. So that's, I call it conservatism. Got it. Of course. Yep. Right. And so yep. what I'll do is I'll figure out about the timing 
the extra costs if you're going to have to do any hiring or any type of uh, go-to-market collateral. So there's the whole kind of build-up investment stage of this. Are you going to have to hire more salespeople to roll this out or can the existing salespeople do it? Is it going to be a completely new customer base or is it going to be an additional product that you can cross out with your existing customers? And so there's some sales and marketing expenses there. There's the development costs. Can your existing development team just do this as part of their the next project they're working on in sequence? Or is this going to be a new group of people you need to hire to build this project? And so you're going to have the development costs, the marketing costs, and everything else going into this. And then you're going to build that into it. And then once you launch and you're going to start to sell, now you're going to build in your assumptions, right? Which is going to be how fast do you think you can, usually some sort of ramp up, how fast do you think you're going to be able to sell it at that price point, how you're going to want to have a kind of keep your eye on a couple of limited ceiling items to limit you, which is going to be your, what's the TAM for this product? Mm-hmm. You're not going to model something to plan on getting 90% market share in the first two years, right? right. So you want to watch the TAM. Right. You're also going to, if you're planning on cross-selling, you're going to say, well, you're not going to get 100% of your customer base usually. So you're going to want to make sure that all of your assumptions are reasonable. And then from there, you're going to plan out your timed phase of how you're going to sell it. So this is going to become almost like another arrow in the quiver of your sales team. You're going to have your base model assumptions and your sales and revenue growth. And this is going to be something else you're going to model now saying, as we sell and build this in, now here's what's how this is going to be built into our forecast. Okay. No, that that makes total sense. So my question is, when you're incorporating this new product into your operating plan, I mean, operating plans can be either, you know, super detailed and get into the weeds, you know, with a lot of assumptions, or they can be more high level. How do you like to keep your operating plans as it pertains to the forecast? Do you, for, like, for example, like, for example, for me, um, what I'm more care, what I care about most is the, is just total ARR, right? You know, I, I want them to bring an ARR, right? I'm, I'm less concerned of like, oh, if the mix is exactly this or that, if, if the sales guys bring in the X amount I need, then that's, that's what I want. But obviously you have to build in some assumptions into your product lines and what you would hope and expect to happen. If it ends up being something different, then that's just a variance. But I'm curious, you know, and the re- another reason why I like to keep it more high level is because, you know, your model gets brittle, right? Yeah, basically, you get into it a couple months and then the assumptions are off or something. And then you just, you're off the rails a bit as opposed to keeping it a little bit more high level and flexible. So I'm, I'm just curious what your uh, what your thought is and how you like to construct it. Okay, so good. So for the, the model itself, I like to try to keep it simple as well. So for me, I'm also all about ARR. And there are a couple of things that go into ARR, which is going to be the number of customers, the average ticket price per customer, right? So that your your new sales, you got upsell and downsell also, but then you've also got your churn. So I think bring them in the front door, keep them from leaving the back door. Mm-hmm. And so I do like to track that. I like to track the number of new customers you're in your bookings. Mm-hmm. I do like to track your average ticket for each one of your customers and then your churn rate. And frankly, when it comes down to it too, if we've got a we've got a target of let's call it 10 million ARR and we get there, but it was because we retained better, but didn't sell as much. I'm not as upset of, of the mix being off as I'm the fact that we hit, right? Of course. Yeah. To your point. So, right. so same thing as we've got a target and there's different levers you can pull and you might find out that you're, you're selling like crazy, but now you've got higher churn. And so there's different things to address, but at the same time, I'm, I'm more happy that we hit it first, but I do like to know that second layer down of inputs because I want to make sure that if we've got a high churn, we're going to burn through the market faster and run out of market because they're just leaving out the back door. And so that's, that's something we're going to want to address. So I do like that second layer down. Once you get past that, I don't really have a built in the model, but I, I guess I keep my eye on it. So for example, if we've got new customers and we're, we're just falling short of our customers, the layer beyond that now is, is it because we're not converting our sales pipeline is because the top of the funnel is not as 
good. So do we need to add more people to the funnel? Or there's there's the step beyond that, that as you dig, I like to have available, but I don't necessarily track that all in detail in the model because to your point, once that just becomes noise and it gets to be too much. Right. And and I like to start off by managing everybody saying, here's our targets, really keep it simple. Our target is 10 million ARR and here's how we're going to get there. Got it. Okay. So kind of just summarizing where we are up to this point, right? Um, you have two basic models, right? That you're building, right? As you're kind of considering. And the model, the first model is designed specifically to prove out the ROI and validity of the product itself, right? At certain, given certain inputs, right? That is something that you would build with your, you know, your task force of, of different department heads or whoever's involved in the pricing discussion. So you can gather all the inputs. Some of the variables are being provided by you. Some are being provided by them, obviously, you know, in terms of, you know, how many engineers, how long is it going to take to build, um, you know, other market factors or whatever, but you take all of that. And the result of that is this initial model, which you can then come back, play with, uh, challenge assumptions, and then get to a point, hopefully where you're comfortable. It's like, all right, we feel comfortable that we're going to sell X amount of user licenses over the period. Our pricing is going to be set at this, but we feel confident that if it dips X amount percentage, we're still in the green. That's the result of that. You then take that and you go and incorporate that into your operating plan with all the other aspects of the company, other, you know, your GNA, other drivers, expenses, um, and then present that. And then you basically have a plan that gives, you know, full three statement. You got your revenues, expenses, your balance sheet, cash flows. And as the months go on, there's obviously going to be variances, right? No, no one can predict the future perfectly, right? But it gives you something to have discussions with, you know, your head of sales, your product people to say, all right, uh, you know, we assumed that there was going to be a ramp of, of X percentage of, of sales regarding this product why are we not hitting that, right? And you probably will have more relevant information, right? Feedback from customers, feedback from your account executives, what they're facing, maybe new competitor info. Uh, and it just gives you an opportunity to self-reflect and then self-correct if, if needed to uh, address, right? Is that kind of where we're at right now? Exactly. Yep. So now you've got, you try to boil it down to something simple. Let's say you uh, we're supposed to sell each, we have four sales reps. Each one's responsible for selling two licenses per month. Try to boil it down to the basics, but then you, that's where monitoring comes, right? The variance yep. analysis. Yep. Um, no plan ever survives the collision with reality. And so, <laughs> yeah, I like that. <laughs> right. And so whenever, so that's why I'm win loss analysis becomes really important. If all of a sudden you're missing your targets and the salespeople come back, coming back saying, hey, no one's willing to pay this much. We've got to pay this much. Then you have to adjust or everyone's looking for this feature. We're not going to sell it until we build this feature. There's You just want to figure out if you're having success or not. You just really want to understand why, right? And so right. that helps you adjust and adapt as quickly as possible. Right. So talk to me real quick about, let's say, okay, so we've gotten to this point where we have an operating plan, we have our models, we have basic parameters. Now, what kind of guardrails do you put in place with your sales team? Um, because obviously, especially when you're an enterprise, discounts become more relevant, uh, other questions. So what kind of structures do you like to put in place to make sure that the pricing doesn't go off the rails and, you know, keeping in, in uh, with that golden rule, no surprises? How do you, how do you address that? So what I usually do is I'll start off with some of the parameters. Um, so if you, the way you, uh, let's just start off with the discounting. Right. Everyone's going to want a discount. That's just going to be the default. The customer is yeah. not doing their job if they don't at least ask for one. Um, and so part of that alignment is you also want to try to structure that to where it makes sense. So one clever thing we did pricing in a prior, a prior company of mine is we didn't give discounts, but what we did is we put some of the pricing at risk. So we said, why would you, you'd be crazy not to do business with us. You're getting this incredible return. 
-hmm. Why would you not do business? Oh, if you don't believe it, so let it give us a chance to prove it. So let's take 10% of that as an example. And you won't pay that until the end of year one. If you don't hit what we're promising, we won't invoice it. We'll invoice that last 10% after we've delivered on our promise. And so we had skin in the game. And so our form of discounting was just delaying a piece of the payment. Hmm. And so we gave the sales, just kind of building the structure where the sales team had something in their quiver to play with it, help sell. But at the hmm. same time, wasn't where they're turning into give it away. Like we kept them as salesmen, right? And so- Got it. Okay. So if you can structure that in the pricing, that helps. Another way to approach is just to build, I like to build framework around it. Like the first year, mm -hmm. you feel free to discount to 5%. Mm -hmm. Then up to 10%, you have to have the sales director approve it. Anything beyond 10%, the CEO, CFO has got to come in and approve it. And so right. by just by nature of having a structure of when they need approvals, it does wonders for making sure they stay within those rails. That's right. um, and it also helps keep you in charge. If everyone's coming in for 10%, over 10% discounts every time they're selling, Mm -hmm. That's another good indicator and it keeps you, keeps you close to the to the market and if your price point's right or not. Okay. I, I really liked what you said, uh, that structure of, you know, maybe you don't have any discount, but you're 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 enabling the sales guys to give something um, and then saying like, hey, like your last invoice or last quarterly invoice or whatever it is, if we're not meeting these things, then we won't have you pay that. I like that because it, it gets them in and gives us the opportunity to actually, you know, prove that the product is worth it, but it it doesn't save. If you really believe in the product that it's going to do what it says, then it, uh, you know, you're not dealing with discounts or credits or anything and you get the customer in. I, I really like that, uh, that kind of structure right there. So I was, I was yeah, it worked really well that. too. And it also helped with the sell. It just kind of just sent this message of, we know the value's there. We're not going to discount because what four to one's not good enough. You want five to one. You're right. You're getting the value and just gave a chance to say, prove us. Right. Right. We really believe it. And we're willing to put skin in the game for it. And what do you think about uh, free trials, uh, paid or non-paid pilots, et cetera, et cetera? What are your What are your thoughts in that in trying to to get their foot in the door? So I've seen a lot of cases where it, I think it works really well. So the thing is that also shows you believe in the product and you think it'll sell itself and just get a, get a foot in the door and get them to try it and you're sure that they'll want more. So I'm, I'm all for that. The whole, it, it goes back to the, it actually reinforces the credible no-brainer thing that it's a no-brainer. You'd be silly not to do business with us. Finding ways of saying, here, let's prove it. And if, if we can prove that uh, if you can trust that, then why wouldn't you do business with us? So to me, that makes sense too. In cases where you do that though, what you want to keep in mind is going back to your question of cash flow. It depends on the status of your business. If you extend yep. this, because we talked about conversion rates and top of the funnel, but there's also the timing of the funnel. If you can shrink it right and be more efficient, that's another metric that I try to measure because if you're tight on cash and your sales funnel, you extend it so long that all of a sudden you've got a good business going, but by the time the cash finally comes in, now you're in trouble. Again, you want to align the whole business. So you want to, if you're going to start doing stuff like that, you want to take into consideration a few other things. If, if you're going to actually give time kills all deals, in my opinion. And so if you're going to extend it too much where you give them a chance to change your mind, or if you give it a long enough time that they're not going to pay, and then there are different factors that can come in. So it's, if you're going to take an approach like that, whatever your strategy is, just make sure you're considering the variables and right. make sure it aligns with your strategy. Yeah, no, I agree. I I personally am not a fan of unpaid things. I, I firmly believe that if we have value and if we have communicated our value, then having a sale, a customer have some skin in the game, pay something to get in involved and invested in it is, is important, right? Anyone can, I mean, I've personally, I've signed up for tons of free trials of something and then just like, you know, eh, you know, whatever. And I, I feel like having that engagement and having that, uh, that mentality of investment in the product and being partners to making the customer successful is, is kind of a, 
you know, is, is essential to uh, increase the adoption of it. So well, that's just, that's just me. Um, that's fantastic. Uh, so tell me, uh, um, kind of wrapping up here, we'll kind of summarize real quick, but any other good resources? Obviously, this framework is the product of your experience and all, you know, the different companies you've been with, but uh, any other resources that you look to, to get ideas, inspiration, or, or more tactical type, you know, assets that they can use to help determine pricing, uh, websites, blogs, books, anything that's a note that you've enjoyed? You know what? I actually wish I had something better for you to offer right now. Um, I usually just try to keep my ears open and I just, if I see something looks interesting, I'll just, I'm, I'm kind of inquisitive and I'll just poke around and I'll read things mm-hmm. and I'll just keep my ear open and I'll talk to, to smart people. Like if I'll listen to what you have to say and I'm always picking up ideas, but Unfortunately, I don't actually have anything specific that would be helpful with this one that I can say, hey, this is a great resource. No. I'll, I'll follow up if I can think of something, though. No, that's good. No, I get it. Uh, obviously, talking with people and experience is the, is the best teacher and whatnot. Um, but uh, yeah, this has been incredibly insightful. I mean, just to kind of summarize and feel free, Brian, to kind of, to kind of chime in if I'm missing something here. But when, when thinking about pricing, obviously, there's a lot of layers. You want to keep it simple. Um, but the, the first step obviously is driving towards that first initial model, right? Gathering the inputs and the people that are needed to understand, all right, you want to launch a product. What's it going to cost, right? How many hours, how many engineers are we going to have to hire new people? How much time is it going to take until it launches, right? Um, it may be, if you're, if it's early enough stage, it may, you may need to understand, you know, what's the additional stress it's going to put on our hosting environment, right? Are there going to be additional costs for Azure and Amazon web services? What are those costs and modeling all that and understanding that clearly, then you kind of go back and talk with the product marketers and the sales team to understand, okay, these are the, uh, what we think once the product is brought to this point with these features, uh, as a, at a minimum, we can sell it and introduce it in this way. This will be the ramp. And this is how we feel we are con- our confidence level in launching this product. You play around with that, go back and forth. You poke at the assumptions. Um, you push back on things that feel unreasonable to you. Uh, and then eventually you come up with this plan where, all right, we're going to invest um, X amount of our resources. We're going to hire these more, X amount more people. Um, and we're going to launch this product that's going to have these features that need to be done by this point in time. And we're going to sell it for this amount. And again, if we stress test with an assumption of average discount rates, given, you know, whatever, you know, the market demands, uh, that's what you're using as your basis. And that's kind of what you're presenting in that executive team meeting to your CEO, getting him comfortable and saying, all right, good job, Brian. I feel good about this. Let's incorporate this into our operating plan. You put that in uh, with you know a, an additional level of details, the mix of the products, and you have a full model that you can then present to the board and have a framework that you can uh, go back and forth, use it for discussions, and try to understand as you're explaining your monthly variances of why is this not, are we behind on a feature? Do we decide last minute to launch maybe without a specific feature? Is that having an impact? And you could just have those discussions, but it gives you a basis to have a, uh, a mechanism to have feedback, to make changes and perfect uh, your pricing model over time. Right. Is that, am I missing something? Is that kind of main points? That's it. Yeah. Well That's done. That's it. That's yeah. it. Easy piece of cake. <laughs> That's right. Well, uh, Brian, it's been great and fantastic. Uh, we appreciate you, uh, your time on coming on uh, again, the CFO leader podcast. And uh, we'll uh, tune in next time. We appreciate everyone that's listening. Thank you. Thank you.